Hey, good morning. Hey, you can go ahead and grab a seat. My name is Ashley Flowers. I'm a member here, and I just want to welcome you to Warehouse. If you don't know your way around this building, it's pretty simple. We've got coffee over this way. We have restrooms. There's additional restrooms over this way, as well as kids' warehouse. And so maybe you dropped a kid or two over there. We hope you gather them again at the end of the service. Um, Hey, Warehouse 242 is a church collective. We're rooted here in West Charlotte, um, but we recognize that you come from all over the city. So no matter where you commuted in from this morning, we're glad that you're here. You are welcome here. Um, I have a few key opportunities I want to share with you this morning that are going to help you engage with our community, help you to connect. And the first is our Ash Wednesday service. That is coming up, believe it or not, March 6th. It'll be from 7 to 8. Ash Wednesday, maybe you didn't grow up celebrating this. It's the start of our season of Lent, which is this time in the church calendar where we um, get to come to terms with our own brokenness. And we get to look forward to, we get to long for the resurrection, the beauty, the power of the resurrection. It's a really powerful service. If you've never been before, I highly encourage you to come. It's March 6, 7 to 8 p.m. The second is um, we've got one more talk back lunch. Um, and if that's not a familiar term to you, what Wes has done during this sermon series is he has um, been willing to stay after service, eat lunch with people, have conversation about what's been going on throughout this series. And so there's one more. Our series ends next week. If you want to be part of it, you're welcome to. They'll talk about what we talk about next week, but you're also welcome to discuss anything throughout the whole series. So there's a few spots left. Sign up this week so that way you can be part of it next week. Um, So we are currently in a series called From This Earth, What It Means to Be Human in an Age of Science. Um, And this morning is going to be more of that. Our lead pastor, Wes, will be teaching on sexuality and biological science. Um, That's going to be tough, um, I think, for him, um, but maybe also for us. I think it's probably been said here before, but oftentimes when we are thinking about things, we're talking about things, and we keep them at arm's length, we tend to be in a place of judgment um, or a lot of thoughts, and it becomes an us versus a we, or I'm sorry, a them versus a we or us. And I would just encourage us this morning to allow the topic to be like this close to us. Um, Because I don't think that it is a topic where we can sit back and just put it at arm's length. Because it is a we thing. It's an us thing. It's a people thing. Um, And so that would be my encouragement this morning. I would love to pray for us. And then I get to introduce um, a friend in a video. And then Wes will share with us. So let me pray. Father, we need you. God, no matter what our morning has held for us already today. I just want to take a breath um, and to proclaim that you are the one that we put our trust in. You are the one that is faithful to us in ways before we even entered this building. You have been ministering to us. And um, so, God, we thank you for that. Um, God, I pray that in this topic, um, Lord, we might feel the need to judge. We might feel the need to experience grace. We might need to experience understanding. And so, Father, would your Holy Spirit do that for us this morning? Um, Would it meet us right where we are? And pray for Wes, who, um, God, this is just a tough topic. Um, And so, God, I pray that you would help him to be a truth teller, um, help him to be gracious with his words. Um, And, God, we are grateful for who you are. Um, Holy Spirit, would you meet us here? In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we get to hear again from Kristen Daly. She's a friend of mine. She is a scientist. She's a psychologist in our community. She's taught me more things than I know, and my daughter sleeps like a champ because of her. So shout out to Kristen for that. Um, Kristen is going to be talking about the complexities of um, sexuality and science um, and some of her thoughts and understanding and also just the confusion around the topic. And so take a look at that. And then again, welcome to Warehouse. One of the things that can be really challenging in the connection of science and faith is what do we do with human sexuality? And we understand from a scientific perspective 
that basically gender identification, gender orientation can come across a broad spectrum. So there's really like, we can all have different degrees of masculinity and femininity. And then we can also look at our sexual orientation. You know, who am I attracted to? And there's also a wide degree of variance along that spectrum as well. To me, it always goes back to this concept that we are all made in God's image. Nobody ever looks at somebody who's different than us and says, they're not of God, only I am of God. And that's not what God calls us to do either. What He calls us to do is build a community centered on loving Him well and loving each other well. The interesting thing about gender is gender is really kind of a construct. You know, we have this idea that masculinity and femininity are certain things, and it's pretty hotly debated that there are brain differences between men and women, and those brain differences back up the idea that the genders at their core are different. And there are a couple of things that really kind of fly in the face of that. One of those things is a lot of our understanding of gender is a, a construct that's more of a cultural construct. So where we can say that women do this or men do that, we often will see that there's a lot of differences just based on our understanding of gender differences. Interestingly, a, a really classic study is if you dress babies in the clothes opposite of their gender, what you will find is people will describe them based on characteristics that are more commonly assumed to be in their gender. So, for example, I dress my baby girl up as a boy, all of a sudden she's going to be somebody who's really engaging and active and climbing and busy. I dress my boy in girl's clothing and she's going to be sweet and kind and submissive. And so a lot of that has to do with how we react simple thing, go into the toy store and look at how the genders are divided up. We encourage rough and tumble play from our sons. We don't always encourage rough and tumble play from our daughters. And that affects brain development. Another thing that affects brain development is the hormones that we are, we are exposed to both in utero and as we are developing. So there is a thing called androgen insensitivity, which is where an XY male in utero is not sensitive to the exposure of androgen, so therefore develops as a female. And often they don't find out that they're actually male until they're trying to conceive and discover that they don't have all of the same machinery and the capacity to conceive a baby. In the womb, we develop both genders. And what happens is our sensitivity to the Y, the y chromosome creates a sensitivity that turns a, male, a female baby into a male or allows, if it's not there, allows the female development to continue. So again, we all start off as women. And then it's that exposure to androgen that turns some women into men. And then we have all of these different ways along the way where that can be interfered with. You know, some of the things that we assume are very big differences between men and women, if we look across the scale, so for example, women have a more developed corpus callosum, the center of the brain is more developed on average in women. If you look at the difference between cor corpus callosum development in men, the spectrum runs the gamut and is broader than the difference between, on average, between men and women. So there is just a ton of developmental, functional, structural differences between men and women that really kind of fly in the face of the idea of there being one true gender or that gender is one specific construct. So in 1983, the American novelist Walker Percy, who was also a devoted Christian, he wrote a fascinating book called Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book. Uh, and through brilliant and sometimes really bizarre satire, Percy mocks any attempt to write a self-help book. It's his goal of this book. And he, he suggests all these other subtitles for it, but the one that I like is this one. Lost in the Cosmos, how you can survive in the cosmos about which you know more and more while knowing less and less about yourself. This, despite 10,000 self-help books, 100,000 psychotherapists, and 100 million fundamentalist Christians. And then to prove that we're really not that great at knowing ourselves, he begins the book with a little preliminary six-question quiz to determine if you need to read the rest of the book. And here's one of his questions in that quiz. Do you understand sexuality? And by that he means not just on a biological level, but do you understand sexuality 
in a cosmic sense, in a spiritual sense, in on the level of your own consciousness. In other words, can you adequately explain the mystery of sexuality? Or are you more confused about sexuality than any other phenomenon in the cosmos? If yes, keep reading. I really appreciate Percy's candor as he begins the book. The things that we think we can understand, but once we begin to bore into them, they become more and more mysterious. I think it puts us all on a level playing field for a morning like this. Because, let's admit it, sexuality is mysterious. Sexuality is glorious. It's broken. It's confusing. And it's at the core of who we are as human beings made in the image of God. So yes, we need to understand it. And yet, we never will completely understand it. So because of that, as I help us wade into this mystery of sexuality, I, I need to ask for your grace. I need to ask for your, your receptivity and openness and patience. Uh, I'm going to cover a lot of things. I'm not nearly going to cover it all. Some of the things I say today, I might get wrong. And I ask for your grace in that. Our goal as we come together on a Sunday morning is, is to be led by the Spirit to develop wisdom. Today, it's wisdom about sexuality as we draw from God's special revelation in Scripture and as we explore God's general revelation in the world that is presented to us by science. That's our goal. We want wisdom, skill in the art of living well. This isn't just about understanding, right? As we hear from the Bible this morning, I want to clear up a major misunderstanding. Because you might have heard someone say that there are six or seven controversial passages about sexuality in the Bible. There are some really difficult passages about sexuality in the Bible, for sure. But that's not where you should start in building a theology of sexuality. Guys, the whole story is about sexuality. It's there in the beginning. Sexuality is there at the end. It's there in the middle. It's everywhere. And it shouldn't surprise us, right? If this is core to who we are as human beings, to our identity and our life in this world, then we should expect that it's everywhere, that the whole Bible should be about this. So, good place to begin, like we've been doing in this whole series, is all the way at the beginning. First couple chapters of the first book in the Bible says a lot about sexuality. So that's where, where we're going to start. It's Genesis 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. It's going to be on the screens as well. But as you probably know, the, uh, the beginning part of chapter 1 is narrating how God formed the cosmos and how he formed the cosmos in a way that enables human beings to flourish to represent God and to join in his mission. And when we get to verse 26, this is what we read. We read that God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Right away, we learn some really important things about what it means to be human, right? What do we learn? Well, first two things we learn is that people are designed in God's image in order to rule over all creation with God, to be co-rulers, co-dominion holders over the rest of creation. And we are designed to reflect God, to image God, as male and female. And last week, our guest speaker, Scott McKnight, pointed out a really important thing about how culturally radical it was to say this. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, the only people who were known to image God were the kings. The kings would image God. The kings were the ones who had dominion over the earth. But here, the word of God through Moses is saying, not only does everyone represent God 
and reflect God and have ownership over creation, but women image God as equally as men. We don't really think twice about this in our culture, but in that culture, this was theologically and socially radical. There was no other creation story like it to say that men and women and everyone are created in God's image with this responsibility to image God and to rule over creation in this way. And, of course, this speaks to us today as well. It says really significant, says something really significant about God and something really significant about us. What it's saying about God is that God is not only one, but God is many. This is how we started our year with a series on the Trinity. It's the Trinity, folks, right? This is, this is a representation, the, the relationality and the diversity and the difference in the human race represented by different sexualities, reflects the relationality and diversity and difference within the very being of God himself, imprinted in creation. God did not originally create asexual people. He created a human race of sexual difference that represents the diversity within his very life. God is beyond male and female, but the maleness and femaleness that we see in creation represents the kind of diversity in God's life. So what this says about us and our identity is that matters. Sexual difference matters. Our sexuality matters. Our bodies matter. They're at the core of our identity and our personhood and what it means to relate to God. Our sexuality matters to God. And if we have any doubt about that, we should just pause and consider that when God decided to enter into this creation, how did he, he entered as a human being named Jesus? He came in the, in the womb of a woman, and he entered the world as a boy, therefore affirming both female and male sexuality. This is how God chose to reveal himself. And um, I'm grateful for art that engages our imagination and presents Jesus as a naked, vulnerable, sexual human being. We see that because it mattered to God when he decided to enter the world. And we see that in some really good art. One that I love. A friend of mine is the pastor at St. Martin in the Fields Church in London. And right in the portico of this church is a sculpture called The Christ Child. A beautiful sculpture. It's a massive block of Portland stone, and it's got, got the words carved around it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. And then on the top of that stone is this fully human, fully naked, fully male baby Jesus. And the point is, God doesn't sidestep that. God loves that. God never ignores our sexuality. He entered into it. He created it. He experienced it. He embraces it, and so should we. Now, all that being said, what does it actually mean for us to embrace maleness and femaleness? Is there such a thing? Can we say that in an age of science? What exactly is this from a biological, scientific perspective? Kristen, one of our members in the video, she's already addressed that to some extent and has begun to explain some of the complexity there, right? And it is. Sexuality is really quite complex. Even just on a biological level, there, there are five factors that determine your sex biologically. The first that Kristen mentioned is chromosomal sexuality. Do you have two X chromosomes as a female or a Y and X chromosome as a male? Then there's gonadal sexuality. It's whether a person develops testes or ovaries in utero. Then anatomical or organ sexuality, the kind of internal or external organs that a fetus develops. Then hormonal sexuality in utero, the relative amounts of estrogen and testosterone that's developed in utero. And then the same thing at puberty, the amount of estrogen and testosterone produced by a person at puberty. So Lots of factors that contribute to your maleness or femaleness and your development. And 
a vast majority of people are born as either male or female in these five ways. So we can put up this, this graph here. We have female and male. And yet, at least as many as 2% of the population do not. Did you know that? At least 2% of the population is born somewhere in the middle. For example, a child may be born with female genitalia, but has X and Y chromosomes, like a male. Or someone may have malfunctioning gonads or abnormal levels of hormones in in comparison with the other biological factors that determine their sex. And the common term for people who experience this kind of ambiguity on the level of biological sex uh, is intersex. 2%. Whether or not someone identifies as intersex, this is a reality that some people are born with characteristics or anatomy. So we can put up the definition. Characteristics or anatomy that does not allow clear identification as male or female. And our understanding of this is growing, thanks to science. Intersexuality. And it's so critical to be aware. Because not everyone fits into the, the binary of male and female. Can, can you imagine how difficult it is living in a male-female society to be in that 2%? If our church represents the statistics, four or five of you would identify somewhere in this spectrum of intersex. And I cannot imagine what that has been like for you. What it has been, what it is like to, to not fit, to not feel like you are one or the other, just based on, on biology. And as I have been thinking about that and learning more about it, my prayer is that this is a community where those who are in that 2% would feel loved and welcomed and can find this really as a place of healing and a place where, where they can know God. So if that is you, that is my prayer for you. Now, um, it's, all, it's important, I think, just to have an awareness that some people who, with an intersex condition, choose to correct that condition through surgery so that they align more holistically as male or female. Some people either can't do that or choose not to do that, and often that depends on their level of gender dysphoria. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, Before I do that, though, it's really critical for us to understand that sex and gender are different things. Okay, sex, which we've been talking about so far, refers to the biological aspects of that male-female continuum. So the five factors that I mentioned earlier, that's sex. Now, gender refers to psychological, social, and cultural aspects of what it means to be male or female or, or somewhere in between. And that's why when you, when you ask someone who's expecting a child, uh, you know, what is the sex of the baby? That's the correct question. Is this baby, do, do you think this baby is male or female? What is their sex? You don't ask what is their gender because that's something that they'll develop as they grow into life through these psychological, social, and cultural influences. Now, as a child grows, whether they are male, female, or intersexual, they have the opportunity through these various factors to develop a gender identity. And sometimes that gender identity aligns with the biological sex, and sometimes uh, it does not. And there are lots of complex reasons for that. Some of it is nature, some of it's nurture, some of it is essence, some of it is environment. Lots of complex factors. But this phrase, gender dysphoria, is one that I really want you to know this morning. Because gender dysphoria names any experience of incongruence that is distressful. Okay, Not everyone who experiences a gender identity that's different than their sexuality views that as a positive thing or experiences that in a, as a positive thing. So gender dysphoria, Yarhouse defines as the experience of distress associated with an incongruence wherein one's psychological and emotional gender identity does not match one's biological sense, sex. And it's not just intersexual people who experience 
gender dysphoria. Some people who are clearly born biologically male or biologically female will develop the opposite gender identity and can also experience gender dysphoria or distress. Um, now, those who are born clearly biologically male or female uh, but have the, a different gender identity, we're talking about those who are transgender. And just so we're clear, I'm using Yarhouse's definition again. He, de- he defines transgender as an umbrella term for the many ways in which people might experience and or present and express or live out their gender identities differently from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. It's really important to understand also, just to clarify, that not everyone who identifies as transgender experiences gender dysphoria. Does that make sense? Some do, uh, some don't. So, for example, one man who gender identifies as a female may experience that as a liberating thing, as a positive thing. Another man who gender identifies as a female may experience that as a deeply distressful experience and therefore may or may not be diagnosed with gender dysphoria but is experiencing that kind of thing. And and both men may want to pursue sex reassignment surgery, but one uh, male to female transgender would person might experience that as something they're anticipating and excited about, and the other to, to help heal and get rid of this distress. Okay, so lots of different reasons. Um, in other words, not everyone who would identify as intersexual or transgender or gender queer, queer would be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, but many of them would experience this kind of distress as well. There's a whole range. And I believe that the church of all communities in the world, the church, God's people, should be a people whose default posture towards those who experience gender dysphoria is hospitality and welcome and care and love. That the church could be a place of healing. And I believe it's especially imperative for cisgender folks, for those who experience a congruence between our biological sex and our gender identity, to lead the way in showing that kind of hospitality and care and compassion with those who experience gender dysphoria. But the church has not done that very well for lots of reasons. And I could go into a lot of them, but the one I want to mention is that I think the reason why the the church hasn't always done that very well is we automatically and very quickly jump to moral issues. Please don't get me wrong. Moral issues are very important. It matters, and you should have convictions on them. But irrespective of your moral perspective on the choices of someone who experiences gender dysphoria, these are people who are made in God's image. And they, I believe, at least those who experience dysphoria over this incongruence, they're experiencing the brokenness of that image more than most of us. So what should that mean for the church? I think it's clear. Not only that, but each one of these people has a unique story and experiences and joys and struggles that can only be known in the context of real, hospitable relationships. So that is where we are called to start. Now, the other reason that people might experience gender dysphoria, this disconnect between being biologically male or female but experiencing that differently, is... uh, cultural gender roles, which Kristen also hinted at in the video. Uh, Before we get into that, I want us to keep reading from Genesis and see what emerges there so we can root our views in the text here. Uh, Chapter 2 of Genesis, we're getting a little more detailed account of that creation of the man and the woman and really what happens in that process. So beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2, the Lord God said, "'It is not good for the man to be alone.'" I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. 
So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and he's united to his wife, and they become one flesh. One traditional interpretation of this passage goes like this. The purpose of the woman is to help the man. The man was created first. The woman was created out of man as a helper. So right here in Genesis 2, we see clear gender roles embedded within creation itself, which are then affirmed all throughout Scripture. And to characterize this view in some ways, it's not actually a far leap from that interpretation to say something like, the woman's place is in the kitchen, and the man makes all the important decisions and holds all the important jobs. I'm serious. People say this sort of thing. Others take the opposite view and say that the man was so weak that he needed a strong woman (laughs) to help him get through life. And that is absolutely true. Whether you are married or heterosexual or what, we need strong women in our life. Now, while it's certainly true, Genesis 2 is, is addressing differences between men and women. We'll talk about that in a second. That's not the point of this text, though, I don't believe. I believe this text is emphasizing their beautiful mutuality. There's a lot of reasons for that, so let me show you a few. First, that word, azer. In the Hebrew, let's highlight it. We have it as helper in the NIV translation. That's actually a good translation, a literal translation. But what kind of helper, we should ask? Uh, Where else is this word used in Scripture? Almost every other time this word is used in Scripture, it's applied to God himself. Okay? And not only is it applied to God himself, but applied in military situations, like... This one in Exodus 18.4, which says, My father's God was my azer, my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Every time this word is used, it is never a submissive, secondary kind of helper. This is a warrior companion. This is who God is. This is who women are. Women were created to be warrior companions along with men as we join together in the mission of God in the world. It is not about hierarchy. It is not about patriarchy. It is about companionship, warrior companionship, being intimate allies in God's mission. And it's the same point when Moses, inspired by God, is is talking about God creating the woman out of the rib of man. This is not to emphasize that men are more important, that men go first. This is to emphasize a a, a bone-deep level solidarity between men and women in the world. Mutuality and bone-level solidarity. And we see see it when Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In other words, the whole point is for their whole relationship to exhibit a unified mutuality. One flesh, one heart, one mind, one passion, one mission. Right? Not, Not to emphasize their differences. Are there fundamental differences between men and women? Well, yeah, of course there are. There are biological differences. Uh, Psychological development, we see differences. We see differences in tallness, generally speaking, depth of voice, strength, brain development, things like that. Yes, but there are always exceptions as well, and there's this fuzzy in-between we've seen. So, yes, differences, not always differences, though, More important question, should there be mutuality and equality between men and women? Yes! Let's stop reading the Bible incorrectly, please. Men and women are equal. And if you don't think that's clear in Genesis, then it becomes crystal clear in the New Testament. 
in Christ there is neither male nor female. Paul in Galatians 3 is not saying the distinction doesn't matter. He's saying there is absolute equality in Christ. Neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Therefore, in Ephesians, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ is the command. Whether in marriage or anywhere else, there is a There is a mutuality between men and women that represents God's will for our lives. And the implications are massive, right? Far-reaching. Whether we're talking about uh, equality in marriage or equality in leadership in the church or equality, uh, equal opportunity for jobs or equal pay. Here's a good question. Who knows the first American-based global sports league to offer gender pay equality? Anybody know? Nope. Not the NBA or NBA. Gender pay equality, first one. Global. Good guess. You want that to be true, don't you, Adrian? Ultimate Frisbee. No, it was the World Surf League. And do you know when that happened? First time in world history there was equal pay in a sports league? 2019. Yeah, we've got a long way to go, people. Well, it was decided in 2018. It's going to affect uh, the first competition in 2019. Look, it was only after sin entered the world that we see inequality between men and women. It's so clear. Genesis 3, it's sad as well, deeply distressing. When you see Adam and Eve just disobeyed God, they start feeling shame about their naked bodies. They start to blame each other and exist at odds with each other. And the man starts to dominate the woman. God says this is a part of the curse that they brought upon themselves. In Genesis 3, uh, I think it's verse 16. Do we have that? Yeah. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But it perpetuates all over the world and even in the church. I think one of the greatest tragedies within the church and within marriage between men and women is how when men who claim to follow Jesus equate godly leadership with domination. Are you with me? If you're following Jesus, godly male leadership looks like washing feet. It looks like dying for people. It doesn't look like domination sexually or any other way. And that goes for godly female leadership too. Breaks my heart. And uh, yeah, it's hard to see that happening in the church. And then uh, to see also that many of the, the things that Christians in the church have identified as gender roles um, really uh, are more culturally constructed than we often realize um, rather than being founded on creational differences. So I need to lighten things up a little bit. Um, my, my oldest daughter likes to wear long pants, and she likes blue, and she likes rough-and-tumble play and taking risks and climbing trees. My youngest daughter loves princess dresses and flowers and unicorns and tea parties. Uh, is she more feminine? No. According to maybe some cultural construct, sure. Is she essentially more feminine according to God? No. No, it's a bunch of rubbish, you guys. (laughs) Some girls can be more wild at heart than most boys. And some boys can be way gentler than most girls. Just by how God made them. Are there differences? Yes. Yes. But let's not overplay these cultural gender roles. Both of my daughters are biologically female and really happy and curious about that. Um, but they live out their gender in very unique ways because they are unique little wonderful females. And my job as their father is to encourage them in exactly how God made them. In fact, I would argue that our rigid, narrow ways of defining gender roles in Christian community has elevated gender dysphoria within the church. Like, well, if I'm not that, I must not be a man. If I'm not that, I must not really be a woman. And it's done way more harm than good. And I'm speaking very personally about this, experiencing 
in some ways being gender identifying outside of some typical like male ways. Um, and it, it often what happens is it turns people who are not precisely gender role conforming according to how certain Christians have understood it, it turns them away from the church and away from Christ and we need to stop it. So I realize I've said a lot already. I've probably upset people. Maybe hopefully I've encouraged people. Um, but what might be obvious to you is I have not yet, I don't know how far I am, probably too far already, past my time, but I have yet to talk about gender, uh, sexual attraction or sexual activity. And I've absolutely done that on purpose. Because I think before, we often zero in straight on that topic without first developing a much broader framework about sexuality as a whole that can inform how we talk about the act of sexuality and sexual attraction. And it's really important to ask questions like, why are we sexual beings? Um, How should we think about sexual attraction and desire? Why did God create us with sexual bodies and sexual desires? And, I mean, perhaps the obvious answer is for having sex, duh. Like, that's why we have this mechanism, right? Well, yeah, I mean, from a biological, scientific perspective, that is actually, that's correct. Uh, Here's one description that I found in a a scientific journal. The sex drive is one among several needs and drives evolved through natural selection as a means of sustaining the life of the organism and ensuring the survival of the species. Well, okay. Actually, to a certain extent, Genesis 1 and 2 affirms some of that in that uh, we see God creating human beings in his image as male and female in order to have sex, in order to have children, in order to fill the earth, in order to represent him worldwide. Okay, so yeah, that's a part of it. It is not nearly all of it. We can, we can zero in on that, but then we miss a lot of people and how they are experiencing their sexuality. It's not nearly a whole story. I mean, what about those of us who are single? In the Bible, I think it's very clear that the only legitimate context for sexual intimacy is marriage. So are you less than you were created to be if you are single and not sexually active? Of course not. You are fully imaging God in a beautiful way as a single person. So it can't just be about the act of sex and having children, that we are sexual beings. Um, What about those of you who are married and either can't have biological children or have chosen not to have biological children? I mean, are you failing in some way, uh, your purpose on earth as sexual beings? No, 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 no. Children are a blessing from God, but they are not essential to our sexual identity and purpose. What about those of you who have chosen not to get married for whatever reason and to live a celibate life? Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, you are better off than married people. You you are somehow close into the will of God in a way that married people aren't. Talk about countercultural. Some crazy stuff. But these people are fully sexual as well. Look, if we believe that Jesus is the incarnation of the fullness of God and the perfect human being, then the purpose of our sexuality should be filtered through his life. Was Jesus married? No. Jesus was not married. Jesus shows you that you can be a perfectly fulfilled sexual human being and never engage in sexual activity. The act of sex is a good and beautiful thing. It's a gift from God, but you don't need it. In fact, when you say, I need it, actually, I'm entitled to it, you have made sex into an idol that takes the place of God desiring God, depending on God. Tim Keller calls money, sex, and power the primary counterfeit idols of our culture, or really any culture, and I think he's right. Money, sex, power become the thing that we desire the most. But saying yes to Jesus involves being willing to say no to anything else for the sake of following Jesus. It's always been that way. Sometimes the church loses that vision. But it's what Jesus is getting at in Luke 9. In Luke 9, he challenges his followers. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. 
What does that mean in connection with our sexuality? Well, I don't think all of us are called to deny all sex. There wouldn't be any kids in the world if that were the case. So not all of us are called to deny all sexual activity, but all of us, and hear me, all of us are called to deny our desire to have sex with whoever we want for the sake of following Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. So, uh, well, I just want to explain. In, in this process of learning how to deny ourselves, th- that is where we are going to discover the true purpose of our sexuality, that it goes deeper than our personal satisfaction. It is, it is deeper and more mysterious because our sexuality, just like any other area of life, becomes this God-given opportunity for us to learn how to desire God and depend on God first. That's why we're sexual. That's why we're human. And what's counterintuitive, but also amazing in that process, is that as we rely on the Spirit in this life of denying ourselves and directing our desires toward God, it doesn't diminish our life. That's actually the path to full life. It's totally counterintuitive, upside-down way of Christianity. That denial is true life. So our sexuality is this opportunity to first desire and depend on God, and out of that, we get the opportunity to fully embrace some desires that align with God's will and joyfully deny other desires for the sake of growing toward Christ-likeness. So as a married heterosexual man who's seeking to follow Jesus faithfully, I need to first desire and depend on my God. And if that is true of my life, I will be liberated to desire only my wife and act on that desire and deny other desires for any other woman. And for me, that's not obeying some cold, random, life-stifling rule. That, that's about desiring and depending on God first so I can have fullness of life and joy and, and Christ-likeness. So that's my call, and that's your call if you are married. If you're single and following Jesus, you have a similar opportunity to first desire and depend on God while asking for the strength to de- deny your desire for a sexual partner for however long the season may last in your life. I know that that is way easier said than done. But we have to have naked conversations about this because there is nothing easy about following Jesus. There's nothing easy that the Spirit is asking us to do in our lives. It's, it's difficult. There's a cost to discipleship, and it's, it's about the transformation of our desires that we are tempted to make into idols. Now, if you're same-sex attracted and following Jesus, depending on how you read Scripture, you too are called to deny, either denying sexual activity and committing to celibacy like others who are single, or if you read Scripture in a different way, denying sex outside of marriage, just like I have. Again, it's, this isn't about restrictive legalism or life-stifling rules. This is about God's blueprint for full life. And the process of having our desires transformed as we seek God and we seek his kingdom first. So I need to say something more about that because that might have thrown you for a loop. Um, I'm acknowledging there is great diversity in this church about same-sex attraction and activity in marriage. And whatever your convictions regarding what faithful living looks like for same-sex attracted and gay Christians... You are welcome at this church. Please hear me. You are welcome at this church. Whether you are traditional in your views or affirming in your views on this issue, the the thing about messy, real church is there's people here who are going to disagree with you and there's people who are going to agree with you. And unless you want to find a community where everyone agrees with you, which I don't know where the transformation is on that, on any issue, I just invite you to stay and dig in with us and be in a real relationship and work this out together. Not that we're all going to agree, but we're going to learn by the Spirit how to live together in unity and in love and in compassion 
and real relationship because we all belong to the body of Christ. If, if you are united to Christ, you belong to the body of Christ, which is the church. And so we have people with equal respect for Scripture in our church who interpret it very differently, who genuinely disagree under the authority of God's Word. How do I interpret this and how do I live this out? God's will for my life in this area. So if we have that level of deep disagreement, my question is not how do I force, force you to, to agree with me or to agree with our denomination on this, but how do we as the family of God welcome each other, love each other, and transform each other in the midst of disagreeing with each other? I think that's true Christian community. And it's hard, and it's, you know, going to take a long time, um, probably we'll never get it right, but that is what God is calling us into. And if you look at various passages in the New Testament, like Romans 14 or other chapters where, where Paul is acknowledging there are disagreements so deep in the first century church that it is right on the verge of splitting. Uh, one of those disagreements was about how do Jews and Gentiles eat together? I mean, Jews can eat all this stuff. Gentiles were like, I can eat it all. And, and Paul is recognizing if you don't learn to love each other through this, the church is done for. Church is done. I think we're at a similar place with sexuality in the church today. If we don't learn how to love each other through this, the church is not going to survive. So, we got to look really carefully at texts like this. Not that there's, there, there's perfect overlap between all the issues of sexuality today and like food and Jew and Gentile identity issues, but there are a lot of similarities and the church was in danger of being ripped apart on the basis of identity and ethics. And so how does Paul speak into that? Well, listen, he says, Welcome each other as those who belong to Christ. Do not pass judgment on each other. In other words, don't assume that someone's lifestyle that you think is unbiblical means they do not have a vital relationship with Christ. Develop biblical convictions on the matter. That's good. Everyone should have convictions about this, but don't let those convictions be a stumbling block to others. What does that mean? I don't, guys, I've been wrestling with that one. How much do I teach and preach on this? How much do I even share my conviction on this? Paul actually says at the very end of Romans 14, because this is so divisive, keep this between you and God. Whoa. Okay. That's an option. So not everyone needs to know your view, perhaps, if it means being in a relationship with people. I've had to continue to wrestle that. He says, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. And while you're doing so, challenge each other toward faithfully following Jesus and embracing the cost of discipleship. What do you see there? I think you see Paul calling the church to high support and high challenge at the same time. That's what discipleship's about as we seek to follow Jesus together, joyfully helping each other deny the things we should deny and joyfully encouraging each other to embrace what we should be embracing. And to do that as we. I loved how you started us out with that today, Ashley. This is not us and them. If we're talking about people within the body of Christ, this is, this is us, this is we. We are sexually impure as a church. Every single one of us is sexually impure and in dire need of the grace of God in our lives. Not just sexually, of course, but in every other way, in order to be whole. And so from that perspective, we are embracing a gospel way forward. By the way, if you're interested in living out a we posture rather than us versus them, I highly recommend Christina Cleveland's book, Disunity in Christ. She's talking primarily about race, but I think it applies to sexuality and other things as well. Disunity in Christ is an incredible book um, that I've gained a lot of wisdom from. And where it, where it brings me in leading us is whatever your biological sex, your gender identity, or your sexual orientation, we are created in the image of God. We are sinners saved by God's grace. We are the church. We are ba- being made new by the Spirit. We are God's ambassadors of reconciliation in the world, so let's live it here first and bring it to the world. We are a new kind of community that gives a glimpse of new creation. 
And that's why I had to change the schedule today and celebrate communion today. Because this is the ultimate symbol of our unity together in Christ. Our communion with God, our communion with each other. This opportunity to remember Jesus who saves us when we couldn't save ourselves. And our opportunity to remember that that is what unites us. Sexuality does not unite us. Christ does. And he is our hope. So as we come to this table together, this is your celebration. You don't need to be unambiguously male or female to be united to Christ. You don't need to experience congruence between your sex and gender to be united to Christ. You don't need to be sexually pure to be united to Christ. You don't need to be heterosexual to be united to Christ. I hope this is obvious, but often we don't live it out. We're going to live it out as we celebrate communion together. You are united to Christ when by grace through faith, you are able to say, I need God more than I need to be fulfilled sexually. Um, That's a tough thing to say, but it is what is required of Jesus' followers. Say, I would... I want to acknowledge that I need God's presence and peace and power first. That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and death to Jesus. That is my identity, first and foremost. So I'm going to invite the servers up. Please come up here with me. I'm going to pray in a second. Um, If you haven't been to Warehouse before, our usual way of celebrating communion, which we'll do this morning, is to gather in little groups around the room groups of 12, 15 or so, to have that intimate experience of celebrating this as, as, a, as one body. So as soon as I serve the servers and pray, uh, they'll go to different parts of the room. The bread will come around first. You can take a little piece off. Then the cup will come around. You can dip that in the bread, in the, um, the wine or the juice. We'll pray and celebrate together. And then when that group is done, you can move back to your seat and another group will form. That's kind of how it goes. So please just, as God leads you, Let's join in and let's celebrate together. God, thank you for giving us this beautiful sign. Jesus, for in this last meal with your disciples, breaking this bread and saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the unity that's possible by taking a cup and saying, this is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So we do. We need you. We remember you. We're saved by you. We're united by you. Our life comes from you. May we taste that in its fullness this morning. God, continue to move in and among us and imprint your truth on our hearts, empower us to live it. If there's anything today that we've said or thought about that goes contrary to our will, God, may it really not leave this room. Help us to forget it and get over it and move past it. If there's anything that is of your will today, God, help it to sink in even deeper. May we live it and breathe it and rely more on you, desire you first, and live out your will as the church. If that means that we're really different as a church, so be it. If it means that people don't get what warehouse is, so be it. Uh, We want to follow you. That's the most important thing. So help us to do it. Amen. You can stay standing as I send you out just a few things to mention. In a couple weeks, we're going to have an all-community meeting. I would love you there. Please be there. We have important things to talk about, not just about finances, but where we're going as a church. It's immediately after the service. Uh, there's not lunch, but we'll get you out of here before you're too hungry. Uh, we will have childcare for the youngest kids. If you need childcare, let us know. We'll love to see you there. 
Um, also, if you're going to the Talkback Lunch today, remember to get your kids right away. Their lunch is in the kids' worship room, which is in the, the corner down that hallway. And then once you've dropped them off, you can head directly uh, to the art gallery to get your lunch. And remember, like what Ashley said at the beginning, if you still want to go to one of these lunches, there is space. So sign up. You can bring any question. It doesn't have to be on the topic of the day. It could be uh, from today that you want to bring next week. But so sign up, fill it up, and let's do lunch together. Um, don't forget... We have a prayer room. We, we love to pray with people, for people. We'd love you to make use of that and also to email us throughout the week, prayer at warehouse242.org. Um, and if you're a guest with us today or interested more about the church, just let us know. Put your um, info down and some things you're interested in on one of those cards. Drop it in a yellow box and, and we'll, we'll reach out. We really look forward to connecting. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for doing this together, and I look forward to continuing to engage with you. In the meantime, receive this benediction. May you run to Jesus with your hunger and your thirst. So many things claim that they can fulfill you, but only Jesus will truly satisfy. So may you find your life in him, and may the Spirit always bring you home and lead you with joy. Go in grace. Thanks for listening to the Warehouse 242 podcast. If you have any questions or want to find out more about Warehouse, visit warehouse242.org or come join us on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 2307 Wilkinson Boulevard in Charlotte. Thanks for listening.